an investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, it's our pleasure to have as our special guest, Paul Clemens Hunt, the man who invented what might be investing's most controversial three letters, ESG. Yes, he literally invented the phrase. Paul was the man who put ESNG together in a Geneva office building nearly 20 years ago. But reducing Paul's career to the acronym for considering environmental, social, and governance factors in investing is reducto ad absurdum. Paul ran the UNEP-FI, the United Nations Signature Program for Financial Institutions. He helped create and then was a founding board member of the Principles for Responsible Investing, which today has, oh, about 5,000 signatories with about $125 trillion in assets under management. Yes, that's $125 trillion with a T. And again, that's only part of Paul's story. He was a journalist in the UK, even doing time at the tabloid flagship, The Sun. He founded an environmental advisory firm in Bangkok, worked for the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris, and was a senior advisor to the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Since 2012, he has built the Blended Capital Group, which is a key behind-the-scenes player in many joint government-business investor collaborations. These are for-profit ventures that also benefit tens of thousands or even millions of people. For example, in Brazil, at the edge of the Amazon, Blended Capital provides affordable credit to off-the-grid farming, fishing, and mining communities, as well as the basics to empower and enrich them. Those credits help bring agri-tech, such as solar lighting, biodigesters for sanitation and cooking gas, and solar freezers to store product. The result is that the farmers can be price takers, not price makers, not price takers. I should get that right because Paul definitely does. Welcome, Paul. John, fantastic to be with you. Looking forward to this. Great. I used to start the podcast by always saying that interesting people have had interesting lives. I don't always do that anymore because not everyone has had an interesting life, but you certainly have. How did you become the person you are today? What's your origin story? You know, John, I, I, I started as a journalist after an economics degree. I wanted to be a sports journalist. And um, I made a classic error that if you become a sports journalist, you can't really play your own sport because you're tied up Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And um, this was all happening when sustainable development was first christened in sort of the mid 80s. And I, I was doing, you know, just regular hack stuff with the red tops and scurrilous gutter journalism, which I loved. But I started then doing environmental trips to Eastern Europe before the war fell, uh, a little bit of um, other work. I guess the, the, the thing that really propelled me into a different environment was Antarctica. I stumbled on a diplomatic process to create an environmental treaty for Antarctica. It was hidden away. No one knew about it. It's through the Antarctic Treaty System. And what fascinated me as a journalist 
was that you had um, the seven big oil companies out of the States lobbying in to a closed diplomatic process. They were shuffled in by, you'll remember, the chief of staff under Bush one, uh, John Sununu. He'd, he'd got the, the, the seven sisters to get inside this process, basically say, no one can tell the US where we can or can't look for oil now or in the future. And that combination of Antarctica and oil and political lobbying just got me obsessed. And that started me. That took me, you know, all the way really from journalism into wanting to commit my career to uh, environment. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, I ended up in, uh, I, I was actually on my way to Antarctica um, and got sidetracked in Bangkok for seven years. So I sometimes introduce myself as the world's Without doubt, the world's least successful ever Antarctic explorer. What were you doing in Bangkok? We'd just got married. My wife was going to write a book on uh, on the Cambodian refugees. I was going to bounce on to six weeks in six months in Antarctica, and um, for a re, re, range of reasons, couldn't get down on the ice. So I set up a little company called the Environmental Business Group, which was really market research. There, there is a there is a leftover from Antarctica. I'd asked one of the scientists who I really admired, Antarctic scientists. I said, "Look, I want to get into environment." And he said, uh, "I'll put the accent on." He said, "Son, if you uh, as a journalist, if you go back to the UK and get involved in environment, they'll have you writing newsletters and making the tea for the next ten years. Go and find a hellhole that's polluted, and and become an expert." So I sort of took him at his advice, and yeah, set up a little company. It was good timing. We were doing. Market information on um, the big utilities, sanitation, sewerage, emissions control, basically market information. So extending the journalistic skills to big engineering companies. Okay, let's tackle the elephants in the room. You coined the phrase ESG. Why? What were you doing at the time and what were you trying to accomplish? It really goes back to Bangkok. I woke up one morning in 92 and I thought this sustainability stuff is great, but if you cannot move finance through private or capital markets at scale, it's nonsense. And it's not about moving billions, it's about moving trillions, okay? So fast forward 10 years, um, I, you know, I, I'd spotted UNEP Finance Initiative in the early 90s. I thought that's fascinating. And then 10 years on, I ended up, ended up heading it. So the early noughties, we had a really small team of very bright, uh, young uh, consultants and staff members, really small. And our basic question was, look, how do we, we, we think that the interests of the United Nations, so that security, peace, environment, development, is completely aligned with the interests of long-term asset owners. Um, the pension funds, you, you won't get investment return if the world goes to hell in a basket. So it's, again, stepping back from that, that was the big idea. What we wanted to do is we wanted to move the conversation on from uh, CSR and socially responsible investment. Nothing wrong with that, but we wanted to speak for, to finance in the language of finance. So, I mean, to be honest, ESG came from OHSE, which is Occupational Health, Safety and Environment. It's all the risk side. And over the course of about 12 months, it morphed. And we, 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 you know, we had a meeting in May 2005 in my office, and it should have been GES. It should have been government, environmental, and social. And my, my tabloid instinct and the team backed it was that, no, look, let, environment's sexy. People can touch it. G, business understand. You've got to get the governance right. Let's put that at the end. And the most difficult for business and investors is it S. Let's weld that in the middle. We don't want that kicked off by Milton Friedman-esque lo lobbyists. And it, it was no more scientific than that. 
It was how do we take the language of financial materiality, connect it to fiduciary, and start getting mainstream asset owners involved with the UN? And 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 that was the you know that was the uh, the origin moment. Um, if if that's if that's clear, John. But what was ESG in your mind at that point? And the simplest thing was we wanted to change the conversation. It was a tool. It was a trick. It was, it was to speak to finance in the language of finance and that our, our basic premise was, look, this idea of ESG being non-financial is nonsense. Changing policy and changing conditions mean that environmental, social, and governance issues all have financial materiality at the heart. It's not just about risk. It's about, you know, if you understand the risk, you understand the opportunity of new industries. And so we wanted to, to forge a conversation, get the pension funds involved, say, look, it is material. There are fiduciary issues. And ESG was just one of the tools in the kit. Little did we know where it was going to go. And to be very honest with you, John, it, you know, ESG was, in my mind, it, it, it was bait on the end of a hook to get get serious long-term investors saying, okay, this systemic stuff is serious and it's coming down the track. So did anyone bite? Do you think you've accomplished your purpose looking back on it? If you ask, did you change the conversation? I think we did change the conversation. It was a long, slow burn. It started really cranking up in 2015, 2016. In terms of where we are with the Wild West ESG, the Fondike phase of ESG, where, you know, um, I, it, it, it's a dreadful metaphor, but I, I use this quite often now. It, the, the people who made the money in the Klondike Gold Rust were the, um, you know, the, the wheelbarrow sellers and the, the, the pickaxe sellers and the bar owners and the brothel owners. There's a little bit of that with ESG at the moment because it's been co-opted into the system, sucked into the system, and there's lots of people making money out of it. Am I happy where it is? Not 100%, but I think it's part of the natural process of capitalism, massive volatility. We are going from 250 years of extractive capitalism, possibly to regenerative capitalism, and we're in the eye of the storm. If we think we can achieve that without volatility, without new ideas and thinking, without politicization, we're kidding ourselves. I see the beginning of the edges of more structure coming. You know, whether it's the ISSB or whether it's what prudential oversight bodies are doing, ESG is now with Bank of International Settlements. Basel Commission on Banking Commission, IOSCO, the insurers, I think it's being driven into the financial architecture and system. It might not end up as, you know, the act might change, but the idea that systemic risks are financially relevant, I think we started that conversation. So just to cap that, look, massive volatility, whether social, politically, we're seeing the nature of risk change. Risk is morphing and it's converging, whether it's climate or ecosystems or you know, popular politics or our social institutions fragmenting. I was told the other day, it's not a failure of, you know, the current volatility is not a failure of Western democracy. It's a, it's a failure of Western political parties, which I thought was very interesting. But ESG focuses, I think, the investment chain on these systemic risks are real strategically and operationally, and we have to protect assets. I think that has changed. Not everyone's bought it, but the conversation's underway. So as someone who's also been involved in the ESG in the beginning, I know that I have very mixed emotions. I, I did not, unlike you, foresee the, the move from process to consider risk and opportunity into a set of products and from thence into 
political issues or political theaters. What I, what I find weird right now is that the loudest critics of ESG claim it's political instead of market-based, but ironically, they're the ones who want to use government power to allocate capital rather than allow the markets to do it. Now, you once said, and consistent with what you just said, ESG is a quintessentially capitalist concept. Do you have any thoughts about the current critiques of ESG and what they get right and what they get wrong? John, let's start with the politicization. I, I am just, uh, uh, do I have any thoughts? Hours of thoughts, right? And, and, and actually, there's a complete alignment between what you've said. So I, I bought at the heart of capitalism, whether you're an investee or a business or a company, there's a very simple question. Is it a risk? Yes or no. If no, move on. If it is a risk, how are you handling it? If you, if, if you don't prioritize it, what has that got for your financial materiality and your fiduciary duties? Like, but that's at the heart of capitalism. Four, five Republican senators who write to the top 50 US law firms telling them they could not get involved in climate schemes or ESG processes is, in my mind, it, it is, it's the antithesis of what a party that stands for free market and capitalism. Once you get politicians telling people what risks they can and are not for, you're on the slippy slope to central planning. I mean, it's a, I'm being a bit tabloid. But in my mind, the politicization of, of ESG runs counter to simple market sense. If policy changes over time, and we have the examples, whether it's asbestos or whether it's certain types of chemicals, as policy chases changes over time, things become material. And the systemic risks and all the local manifestations are becoming material. A business or investor have got to be able to, in a capital capitalistic model, to ask that fundamental question, is it a risk? We've got to be able to ask those questions. Um, just again, and maybe as a, as a footnote, I, um, uh, in terms of ESG, there's an, there's an element where, I, again, my metaphor is quite often the market um, co-opts good things, you know, whether it's the, the surf, surfer vibe from the 60s or it's the commercialization of some really edgy band. The market knows how to co-opt good things. And I think my comparison for ESG at the moment is it's sort of been co-opted in the way that Che Guevara's image was for T-shirts or for vodka bottles. I, again, I'm not making the political point, but a strong iconic thing is co-opted to make money. And I think that's a natural part of the market process. But to come back to the politicization, I, 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 it almost beggars belief for me that you have, you know, the, the Republican attack and the, the laws being moved to prevent asset owners asking questions about risk. Well, ironically, of course, the same Republicans cite country risk for why the federal thrift uh, savings plan should not invest in China, but which, you know, is a legitimate ESG question of whether you should or not. But it's okay to consider that risk, but not certain others, and which is what is annoying to me about the politicization is that they, they lose the whole concept of what this is supposed to be. Let's move to the future. Yeah. You were early in thinking about things, systemic risks like climate change and poverty as systematic, non-diversifiable risks to the financial system and the capital markets. If you look forward, where do you see risks and the flip side, the major opportunities systemically for investors in the next decade or two. 
Oh, can a, a footnote there is a, a lot of my thinking and my thinking and, and work around this was fashioned by living in a, a polluted hellhole, as wonderful as it was, but we lived in Bangkok for seven years. So seeing the, the issues of pollution and poverty up front really formed my thinking in and around the, the need to get finance on board. Genuinely, it's easy to say optimistic about the future. We've got huge challenges in every facet, you know, socioeconomic, political, all of those things post-pandemic. But um, I, I think, I mean, as an example, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US in terms of a piece of policy, which I'm sure will be hammered by all sides, but a piece of policy which incentivizes the move to green and green industry is an example of the type of huge industrial policy thinking that we need to see properly in the EU, we need to see in Japan, we need to see in all of the major economies, certainly in China, in terms of shifting us from extractive to regenerative. Now, that's at 100,000 feet, okay? Um, I mean, I, I, let, me, let me go down to ground level. Um, some of the... You know, some of the work that we've done in Africa over the last decade is, uh, and let me unpack this. Look, if you're a big multinational in a mining value chain, or you're a big multinational in an agroforestry value chain, if you're one of the commodities players, one of the most difficult things for you to deal with in, a, in, a, in, an, in an era when we are totally connected and you can't hide anything are the last mile communities at the end of your value chain where you're extracting value and you're not leaving money behind, okay? Or you're not leaving value behind, not necessarily. I think in the G7, the OECD and investors, we tend to look down supply chains. We look down value chains from our own countries. We've got to start locking up because the, the best insurance you can buy as a corporation or as an investor is remove social conflict at the end of those value chains. And to, to maybe get more practical, John, and not to be too theoretical. So, you know, work we did in Western Kenya over the last 10 years of putting in place a for-profit distribution business to work with uh, 60,000 families, 250,000 people, 30% uh, fishing uh, farmers was 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 an experimental thing to see how you can head off conflict and manage risk in value chains, right? So come back to your question. Um, fundamentally, I go back to my original point. I don't think anyone knows how risk is changing on this planet at the moment. It's morphing. The very nature of risk is changing because of the climate, because of ecosystems destruction, because of social volatility. You know, Let's put that into one specific example. Um, let's, let's think you're an investor, either national or private, in one of the nuclear industries or in a nuclear industry in France, right? Where does a chunk of your uranium come from? It comes from Niger. What are the stats on Niger? Um, 23 million people, 75% under, under 16. It'll be 186 million by 2100. It's 94% multidimensional poverty. And it is a really important source of uranium for nuclear power industries. So I'm, I'm giving you a, a tabloid example of if we do not manage the social risks more effectively, we do not manage the migration risks, and we do not manage the basic provision of services to those communities. I think that is one of the biggest threats 
to social, economic, and market order. Africa is going to run from 1.4 billion people. By 2050, it will be the only continent growing. By 2100, it will be 4 billion people. In my simplistic mind, Africa has to work this century for capitalism to continue working. And I hope these statements are not too big, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, um, you know, round them into a limited time period. I hope they make sense. And I can unpick them as you wish, John. These statements are exactly what this podcast is about. People should think about the demographics of the fact that Africa will have more people than Asia by 2100 if they're going to figure out investing. So tell us what you're doing with it. You mentioned um, your, your work with Blended Capital Group around Lake Victoria. I mentioned some of the things in Brazil in my intro. How do you make money at this? What's the revenue model? We, and, and, and got to be absolute straight, we started in 2012 with my uh, co-founder, British guy, Mike Sherry, a business called Mwazi, which um, is uh, Moonlight in Swahili. Now, Mwazi looked like a solar lights company. It was built from the word go as a, um, a data-intensive integrated distribution platform to do a number of things. One, provide useful products to last mile communities. So a good example of that is the fishing boats on Lake Victoria typically use kerosene lamp. There are 22,000 boats on Lake Victoria um, and kerosene is bad for the environment, but awful for the fishermen's health. So one of our lines was to replace the kerosene with solar lights, fishermen, uh, fishermen fish at night. So that's a very quick example of where you've got an environmental benefit and you've got a, a social and health benefit. Um, the the 10 years at Mwazi proved the model in that we increased our range. It, I have to say that through Mwazi has now gone through a process of administration. It was killed by uh, COVID supply chains and a massive, a massive increase in import export costs. But we had 10 years of a business that we know works and can replicate and scale. Okay. So. Through that process, and I will come to your question, we, we have been in negotiation with a Brazilian sanitation company for three years, and that has enabled us to go into Brazil with the same model, which, which solves a specific regula regulatory issue for the sanitation company, which serves 20 million people through public mandates. A law of 21 said they had to serve everyone in the same way. They identified our model as providing options for their off-grid customers. So look, in terms of how do you make money out of it, what we did was we took an asset-backed model, we provided affordable credit to communities, and we built in things like funeral insurance, health insurance. And the uh, our biggest ever sales month, August 20, just as COVID began in Africa, was about $300,000, right? Now, it's not big business, but the model works. Our idea is that we replicate and scale that in Brazil, working with a large corporate backer, that we actually can scale and replicate that money, uh, that, that model in any country in the world. So what is 10 years of gathering scars? There's 10 years of trying to attract finance. There's 10 years of learning the power of going in with a big partner, not bootstrapping and not depending upon sort of a variety of debt providers. Um, so 
it, it was 10 years of experience building. Did the model work? Yes, it did. What killed it? COVID, corruption, supply chain, interruption. But our Brazilian model is now incorporated and we're going through the pilot process. So the question, how do you make money out of that? You might not make the sort of 20, 30, 40% return that some people want. But if you can replicate that in and across 2 billion off-grid people, we can take that model from sanitation companies in Brazil back into sanitation suppliers anywhere in Asia or Africa. And one of the really interesting things for us is the fact that the Brazilian entity is, is owned by, uh, is a private equity holding of Brookfield's asset management out of Canada. So, you know, our conversation here is there's a model. We think it is part of the infrastructure offering. And look, the, there's 2 billion people who are going to wait an awful long time to get grid, on grid across the world. If we have a model that works and has good finance and it can deliver those basic services, you're heading off massive social risks and social disruption. and Everybody wins. You recently added a new title to your resume, one that quite honestly I found a little surprising. You became a director at Mishkan de Rea, the UK law firm. Now, I don't want an advertisement for Mishkan, but given your career, why a law firm? How does that fit in with your continuing work at Blended Capital? To answer your question on the legal front, Myself and Paul Watchman, who I believe you know, Professor Paul Watchman, who did the, the Freshfields report for the UN in 2005, looking at ESG and fiduciary duty. When COVID began, we started an exercise where we said, Let, let's, let's, let's have a look at how different parts of professional services influence the investment chain on ESG. It became clear that accountants, lawyers, and it will be no surprise to you that the major consultancies have a huge influence on the entire investment chain. And what we found was that within that, within pockets of accountancy and the law and professional services, there was very, very little true, genuine bench depth of ESG expertise. So our question was, okay, how can you have $120 trillion serving the PRI? You have these incredibly um, in influential professional services organizations, but they have no bench depth on ESG or sustainability. So we, let's have a look at this. And we literally started by saying, let's, let's take 55 large law firms. We're, we're not going to do this on a punitive basis. We're not rating. We're not ranking. We just want to see what's the state of the industry. So we created something called Chasing the Dragon, the, the rise of ESG law. And the results were quite shocking but also really interesting in terms of generational splits within lawyers, the belief that lawyers should become more active, not reactive, the desperate scramble for lawyers to refurbish their, their, their CVs, um, you know, as ESG experts. The following year, we looked at 100 uh, law firms, Magic Circle, white, chap, white, white Shoe Lawyers from the US. We went more international. Definite improvement, but again, um, you know, parts of the legal fraternity were, um, were perilously close to greenwashing in terms of claiming what they could do and what they couldn't do. I then got into a conversation uh, with Mishkan Durea and um, their approach interested me. They'd set up a body at the beginning of Corpus, uh, at the beginning of um, a COVID called Mishkan Purpose. They had changed their partner deeds uh, of, a, you know, of a fairly significant law firm to recognize that the firm needed to uh, ensure 
positive social impact. So that was the basis. And the, the conversation was, you know, let, let's work together and see if we can create a business both on the litigation side, but also on the advisory side in terms of sustainability and law. It's been a wild ride the last eight months trying to define the model and, and get it to market. And look, if at a time that risk is changing, the nature of risk is changing, if that is not bread and butter for lawyers, what is, right? So at a basic level, a lot of, you know, there's repapering of contracts everywhere, whether it's in real estate, there's a range of legal initiatives to pull the industry together in terms of sustainability. I think law is playing catch up, but the, the bottom line is lawyers are fianas. They smell and see the wind changing and the market shifting at a time of fundamental change. When risk is changing, there's money to be made. So look, I can't be more tabloid than that. It's been a fascinating eight months. Um, I, I love uh, the entrepreneurialism, Mishcon, and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're taking it forward. We talked about your origin story. We've heard how passionate you are about everything. What makes Paul Clemens want to get up in the morning? What makes you tick? It's much more about social justice than the environmental side. I see them completely, I see them completely in utterly part of the same thing. By social justice, I mean the ability for any individual, family, or community to have clean water, light, access to medicine. It goes back to your own constitution, that the, the sort of, um, I guess a paraphrase is the right to enjoy themselves, but to have dignified lives. That, for me, comes down to infrastructure. Now, whether that's core infrastructure, as we all understand it, or it's decentralized infrastructure. If you give people the ability to have really the basics, the clean water, the health, the energy, the power, then education, all of that, that is what will enable us to rescue the future. And there's just simply far too many people in my really privileged life of traveling nonstop for 30 plus years who simply do not have that. And uh, John, maybe to, to land that helicopter, a short, answer, a short question, but a long answer. Um, I, I chaired a body called SOS Sahel, which is a French NGO, which has worked in the 11 Sahelian countries for 40 years. So I, I chaired it between 216 and 220. And those are the countries between Senegal and Djibouti. So it's Chad, it's Burkina Faso, it's Mali, it's Niger. It's, you know, some of the countries with the most most intense and unimaginably wicked sustainability problems. And everyone seems them as doom laden. You know, it's, it's, it's conflict and it's Islamic um, fundamentalism. And, and what I actually found was, yes, there's all of that there, but the, these incredibly vibrant communities. And again, it's back to that Niger thing, right? 75% of that Sahelian population, which is, comes in at maybe 220 million, they never quite know, but which is going to be 500 million. The vibrancy, the entrepreneurialism, the smart, you give them the fundamentals and that, that those communities can make themselves. The difference between seeing a community with an irrigation dam from the 1980s and a community a few kilometers away with no simple infrastructure was the lesson for me. So what, what is the lesson? Um, if we, you know, the it's called the Sahel benefiting from the demographic bounce that the youth with hope and optimism and they want jobs and they want good farms and they want to, all of those things, right? 
if we do not start getting that systemic overview, if we don't have the states people to understand that, the migration north from the Sahel that we're seeing in Europe now is the very, very beginning. So these, these systemic issues are about socialist, it, 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 social justice. It is about the delivery of basic services, roads and sanitation and all of those things. And that's how I come of it. That's, that's, what, that's what gets me up in the morning. Huge systemic issues, but huge appetite for people to do well and get on. And we must not underestimate the smarts in some of the most vulnerable countries in the world. I'll leave it at that, John. Hey, let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? Jim, lifting heavy weights and, um, and cardio. What are you reading right now? Actually, I'm, I'm reading a book about the Stoics, Stoic philosophy. It's very much based upon Marcus Aurelius. I'll get this wrong, but Epi, Epi, Seneca and Epictetus in terms of their learnings. And it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful insight into, I guess the philosophy is basically, you're about your action. You're not about what you say or what you, or, or the PR you cover yourself in. It is, and ultimately, the only way your life can be judged is through action rather than what you say or what you want or what you believe you deserve. So I, I'm finding that really both powerful and comforting, really loving it. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Well, Antarctica. <laughs> that would trump it. If someone gave me a return ticket, it didn't even have to be a return ticket. I remain obsessive. Um, the Antarctic Environmental Protection Regime is up for renewal in 2042. And that will be a six-year period. Now, I would like, if God spares me, to get to that. Um, so that would have been a stretch from 1989 to 2042. I was the only journalist who really covered each of the meetings in out, and I did it on my own ticket. But if at that stage we're arguing about nodding donkey or finding coal in Antarctica, which we will be, we will be in real, real trouble. To overturn the treaty and to open Antarctica up, it requires a 75% vote of the 39 Antarctic Treaty members. And um, I'm predicting that we will, we will see a fierce battle start in the 30s around that. And, and that will be the great tragedy. If, 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 if we lose that one, I think you know, we're, we're finished from a climate standpoint. If we can have a beer together at the US uh, South Pole Station in 2042, John, that would be a result. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what is it you would whisper into their ears? Believe in the smarts, the entrepreneurialism, and the appetite of children and teenagers in the most vulnerable communities in the world because they have it in spades. It's the old, I think it was Hillary Clinton thing, you know, that um, brains, brains and education are not, you know, delivered equally, but it, 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 it's to have the faith in the very poorest of the poorest, give them a leg up and they will find a way. So it's as simple as that. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John McCumnick with our special guest, Paul Clemenson. Paul, a fascinating career from inventing the phrase ESG, tabloid journalism, being in a hellhole of Bangkok and, and, um, 
trusting his own smarts and brains and education to uh, make a difference and be passionate about lots of things while educating us all about various things, including Antarctica and trusting the brains and smarts and entrepreneurship of uh, developing country youth. Thanks so much, Paul. Oh, John, thank you. An absolute pleasure. L- love it every time we connect. And uh, thanks for the, the honor of, of joining the podcast. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukomnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukomnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.